Welcome all you adventurous readers to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Welcome to episode two, where we'll be concentrating on the concept of the epic. Right, what is an epic? Why and how? I'm Chris Godwin. And I'm Katie Kavanagh. Well, that's a great first question, Chris. What is an epic? To understand what Dublin meant by this, we have to look at his view of the standard novel, which he had a very low opinion of, because a standard novel has a contrived plot invented by, you know, one particular writer sitting in his room. And the plot usually involves something about sex or murder or whatever. A lot of amateur psychology in it about the hero or the, the heroine or the villain and a very shallow view about the reality of life. So when I think of epic, I always think something grand, something big, but mainly something that goes on and on. Uh, um, yes, because I mean, the, the, the epic is as large as life. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and it's it, it, it involves something of kind of universal significance, which is why, you know, epic, epics have resounded with different generations over thousands of years. So they've obviously got something which appeals to, mm. you know, deep psychology in human beings. Now, we know mm. already from episode one that um, Durbin wrote a variety of material, but was most of his material epic based? Well, I suppose it depends actually how you how you how you count it by page page counts or word counts or uh, items or whatever. I mean, he he wrote nine epic fictions, right? Right. But I mean, the longest of those was like two thousand two hundred pages in its current printed version, okay. Okay. right? And I don't think any of them were less than about five hundred pages, right? So I mean, these were enormous blocks of work mm -hmm. which came along at intervals of uh, three or four or five years. Mm -hmm. Um, but in between, he was producing an enormous amount of uh, essay material, interview material, lectures, um, reviews of, of theatre and of books, um, uh, writings on uh, nature, mm -hmm. on uh, criminology, actually. Oh, okay. He wrote, he wrote one book about a, a famous murder case where two girlfriends murdered the... Uh, the husband of one of them. Right. right? Yeah. So did he tend, did the way that he worked, did he tend just to have one um, one project on the go at a time or would he have a few? So if he's worked, for example, if he's working on, say, Manas, is he going to have another another project going working alongside that or did he just focus uh, in on each? Uh, well, I think while he was while he was writing one of these epics, mm -hmm. he would be very, very focused on the writing, okay. sometimes almost to the point of having a nervous breakdown. Right. Right. So I would imagine at the time he was actually doing the writing, mm -hmm. he would have kind of closed the door on 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 extraneous things like okay. requests from newspapers to fill in questionnaires, this kind of thing. Right. And we can't but, forget as well that obviously he had his other job, his, his main income happening at the same time as a neurologist. Yeah, well, occasionally he sort of um, went on holiday for that. So he could spend a few weeks in isolation, putting, putting you know, the final chapters to, uh, to one of his books. Right, interesting. Yeah. Okay, Chris, so um, we know that he enjoyed writing epics. So when did he write his first epic? Uh, well, he, he wrote that in uh, around 1912. Okay, and what was that named? That was Wanglun, the Three, the three Leaps of Wanglun. Okay. Yeah. But that, of course, was already a decade into his writing career, 
more than a decade, in fact. Um, so, in, you know, in the previous 10 years or so, he'd been uh, writing several short stories. Um, several of those were based on abnormal psychology. They were kind of penetrating deeper into how characters behave um, rather than the more shallow way that uh, uh, the characters in a standard story or novel were, were depicted. Um, it, his early short stories were translated recently by Damien Searles um, in a book called Bright Magic, in case readers want to look that one up. Okay. So he was, you know, really already looking to dig beneath the surface into deeper reality of, you know, what what drives human beings. Okay, and and of course his his medical career was entrenched in that as well. What what does drive human beings? Well, That's the neurologist side of him. Yes, I mean he uh, he you know he qualified as a doctor with a a thesis on um, memory disorders in a, a particular syndrome that was going around at the time. Um, which affected sort of late stage alcoholics and we're going to do a reading later on Katie Ooh. a dramatized reading of Excellent. an interaction between Dr Derblin and a particular patient which he uh, in, you know which he treated in his uh, in his thesis oh fantastic so okay. it was we'll a very very interesting how the you no know, kind of the the amnesiac patients fabulations uh, could then be sort of um, transferred across to the way that writers exercise their imaginations and put things together in strange ways which actually entertain people and make people feel, uh, you know, they're really learning mm -hmm. something about the world. That's really interesting, um, you know, who, who's obviously seeing a side of human life that's often not talked about or not seen. So he has privy to, I mean, certainly mental health is, is a big topic at the moment yes, and, yeah. and going forward, but back then? Um... Well, psychology was, of course, you know, it already in the you know, middle of the 19th century had been mm -hmm. sort of becoming a kind of professional medical uh, discipline. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, I mean, this... Uh... But I guess there's always there's always been an appetite to from from readers to who are um, curious about that side of things. Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, this why you know, why, why, you know Dostoevsky was so um, well, you know, much read throughout Europe when uh, you know the character of his uh, Raskolnikov, the the guy who decides just to kill an old lady just to see if he can get away with it. Oh, you know, correctly. Kind of, yeah. Sorry, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no problem. Let's take us back um, on yeah. track. But of course, only at the same time. Yes, I mean his um, his, his his interest in the real kind of you know trying uh, one of his medical lines of research was to see what do hormones, how do hormones interact with the mind? Mm -hmm. um, that turned out to be just sort of not, not able to go very far, but he was really interested in, you know, this kind of uh, the, the way the mind and the body affect each other. Mm -hmm. um, but he was also, of course, mixing with this avant-garde bunch of poets and artists who were part of this ferment of culture in the pre-First World and War. And so that's the time Germany. of the Expressionists. Yes, yeah, well, they, they eventually sort of became coalesced as a sort of the Expressionist movement. As a group, okay. Yes, and particularly with the uh, art exhibitions where we had all these artists doing quite, you know, garish pictures, of, you know, the same thing seen from different perspectives yep. and so on, or, or, or collages sort of, uh, mm -hmm. of dis incongruous objects sort of placed together, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I mean, Döblin was, you know, it was a very um, enthusiastic uh, kind of member of that circle at first. He helped to um, set up the leading journal, the Der Sturm. Um, but he cooled eventually because he could see that they were sort of playing with words and playing with the music of words, mm -hmm. whereas he wanted to use words to dig down into, you know, deeper realities. So he said they steered words onto the cliff of music. Okay. In other words, you know, they just fall off the cliff and they're gone. They haven't actually uh, contributed to... Uh, so away uh, from meaning. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so did they welcome the expressionists? The, the, I imagine some of them remained his friends. Did they welcome Wang Lun when that was yeah. published? Well, this was quite strange. I mean, Dublin remained friends with all these uh, you know, people he'd worked with um, mm -hmm. in the expressionist movement, but they completely ignored Wang Lun which was the first, what you could say was the first long form piece of expressionist prose, but they, they weren't interested in it. So um, I'm Derblin, I'm sitting down to write my new epic. Um, I'm steering away from my expressionist friends. I'm digging deeper into the world that I want to create. How am I, how am I doing that? What, what, what does he do? Uh, well, first of all, when you say sitting down to write Wang Lun, that the sitting down to do the writing mm -hmm. comes after a very considerable period of gestation. Okay. Uh, for instance, I mean, let me quote from Dublin describing how he went about writing Wang Lun. He says, when I wrote a Chinese novel, I made several visits to the Museum of Anthropology in Berlin and read a number of travelogues on China and accounts of Chinese customs but how misleading is the term I use here, read. At the time, I had no intention of busying myself with China, never even dreamt of travelling to China, but I had a fundamental spiritual experience or mindset which I tended with the greatest care and furnished it with everything it needed to work itself out. So this working out is happening with in jotters, in sketches, in writing lists of you know interesting Chinese clothes or or cities or whatnot and and all the time his mind is churning over with this fundamental spiritual experience. So he's he's like terraforming his world there. Uh, I guess you could say that or he's he's channeling something there in the world something yeah. that's been there in the world I mean in the Chinese case for two and a half thousand years mm -hmm. uh, from from the time the you Taoism know, became um, an influential religion of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this idea that uh, you can't conquer the world by being strong and fierce, you conquer the world by being meek and uh, so on. So this was, his, this was his experience that he, he built the whole story of Wang Lun around this um, kind of Taoist idea. Okay, so would in, in that respect then, so he's quite spiritual? He, uh, well, I mean, he, he grew up in a, um, a Jewish family, but not a particularly kind of believing Jewish family. He, he found um, sort of going off to the synagogue a very depressing experience generally and mm -hmm. didn't particularly want to learn to, um, to write it with Hebrew letters and so on. So he wasn't really a practicing Jew when mm -hmm. he grew up. Um, he registered as a, a Protestant, uh, I think, when he got married. Mm -hmm. But again, didn't didn't go to church and so on. Um, but but he was always 
concerned with matters of the soul, mm. you could say, yes. So eventually in Los Angeles, uh, when he was in exile during the Second World War, he converted to Roman Catholic. Catholicism. Uh, yes. Um, so you could say, yeah, I mean, he was, yes, he was always spiritual. He always had, uh, you know, some sense of the world, which was not just how to use it, you know. So. All right, Chris, so let's take it back to um, our original question, which was, um, what was the difference? What's the difference between an epic and a and a, a shorter form of writing? Well, it's not just a shorter form of writing, it's a different form of writing. Okay. <laughs> the standard novel versus the epic. So, mm -hmm. yeah, as he says, what, what lifts some or other invented action out of the domain of the merely concocted and written down and puts it into a sphere of truth is the exemplary nature of the action and the characters. We have stark fundamental situations, elemental situations of human existence to be worked through. Okay. So this was, you know, goes back to Homer, uh, Don Quixote, mm -hmm. um, Dante. So he's giving these. himself time and space. So he's in the epic, he's able to give himself that time to create, you know, go into detail and more depth. Well, it, ne and well it needs, yes, it needs, it needs space. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the it's the it's it's the what we were just talking about the fundamental spiritual kind of um, notion which was working away in him about something about elemental about human existence. Okay. Right? And of course, this touches on all kinds of issues. You've got you know psychology, psychiatry, ideology, propaganda, religion, things like the collective unconscious, thin veneer of civilization. You know to to break through into kind of deeper spheres of human meaning and uh, and, and existence he uh, you know he, he really needs this new approach not simply it's not simply space it's method as well um let's get back to wang Lun then and talk about its themes what's its main its main theme then chris well, the main theme is a bit is um meekness against power we have this uh, these sectarian outcasts who you know feel somehow they're not at home in the you know the well-governed um, Manchu Qing Dynasty state, which uh, uh, forcefully oppresses anybody who opposes the state, and so they become outcasts and you know gather together and camp out in the in the fields and the mountains and so on, and they hope that they can just you know escape uh, the power of the state, and that turns out not to be quite true. But this idea of non-action versus action is something that's been around for two and a half thousand years, ever since the Taoist religion sort of developed in, uh, um, in, in, in China during the Warring States period. So again, let's, uh, let's have a, a quote where he's contrasting his approach with uh, other authors. Authors boast that they have handed down most truthfully and almost as a documentary, the history of an era or a family or an individual as accurately as possible, as close to reality as possible. I think this was a dig at Thomas Mann and his great first novel called Buddenbrooks, which okay. uh, made him very famous in, I think it was 1900 it was published. So maybe using the methods of a theoretician, a historian. Well, if you compare this with the sphere of the hyper-real, of the fantastic, of fabulation, how paltry, wretched, even burlesque are these naturalist writers? The sphere of fantasy and fabulation is simply the negation of the sphere of reality. The sphere of hyper-reality is the sphere of a new truth and a quite special reality. 
So would you say um, he was a fantasy writer then, Chris? No, I think that would kind of degrade his uh, his occupation very fundamentally. Um, each, say each of his epics was nurtured around a kernel of some niggling notion, which he would nurture for several, maybe years, until enough words and other ideas had coalesced around it to enable him to start start the writing all right so he's now um finishing off his epic his first epic uh what happens next is he satisfied is he done every time he finished a book he sort of flung it from him and didn't want to know anything more about it basically he generally he wouldn't even pay much attention to doing the proofreading when mm -hmm. the printer sent the printed proofs um and I quite know, yeah sorry i was just gonna say i know from episode one for for those people who have listened to episode one we talked about how he um thought it was like unraveling a ball of string that notion of it there was well that's a the gestation period and then yeah. a, then there was an end and once he mm. was done he was done and put yes. it aside and yes and uh, say, i mean quite late in life he asked himself what did these books want I can still remember. I, who still feel myself as I, wanted nothing to do with them. There were in these things no aims, no desires, no intentions. But at some point I was seized by a message, a report. On each occasion there must have been some item of news or a story, for when it sparked and connected and I held it fast, it proved to be the seed in a mother liquor, a supersaturated solution. Crystals grew in it. And then he talks about the string, the ball of string. But what I unrolled, what flowed out of me in pictures, of course, was I myself, my state at that time, and even more, something that worked in me impersonally as nature and loved to take on spiritual, fantastical forms, a meteor, a stone statue, precipitating out of my substance. And when, I, when it came to an end, every time I was glad it was over. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can imagine. I like that last part where he says, a meteor, a stone statue precipitating out. Yeah, that sounds good. Each epic we know was a teeming world filled with life and, and lots of convincing detail. Yeah, like the fabulations of these um, mental patients. There's actually a wonderful uh, anecdote by the philosopher Gunther Anders, who'd written a review of Berlin Alexanderplatz, and so Dublin agreed to see him to chat about what Dublin thought were this right clever review. So he and Dublin disagreed about some incident in the novel. So Dublin suggested, why not phone Franz Bieberkopf, the uh, main character in the novel, to settle the matter? And Anders had to point out that, first of all, a chap like Bieberkopf wouldn't be in the phone book. And B, he was a character invented by Dublin. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, later on in a, in a different uh, essay, Anders says of Dublin that as a writer, he outstripped himself. His creations outshone the creator. In a post-hypnotic amnesia, he betrayed no sign of his actual depths and to some extent had no notion of those depths, had no understanding of them at all. Oh, so that's, like, that's a good lead into our, uh, into our play today then, into our reading of a play. Yeah, um, right. So this is, uh, I, I've sort of dramatised um, uh, an examination between Dublin and a patient, which he included in his, in his 1905 dissertation. 
So here we are in the mental ward on 24th of November 1904. Doc, not yet Dr. Dublin comes in to talk to the patient. The patient does not recognise the investigator, asks courteously. Oh, good day to you, sir. To whom do I owe this pleasure? Very happy to meet you, I'm sure. When the investigator asserts he knows the patient and calls him by name to prove it, the patient ponders a long while, then... Oh, yes, I remember now. I sat with you in a tavern in Hazel two or three years ago. Oh, we only chatted for a few minutes. I know nothing more of it. Do you know where you are now? Yeah, I'm in Hazel. Do you know the year? The year? Uh, it's 1856. It's autumn. What year were you born? Mm, let's see, that would be 1856. Did I tell you I was in the war back in 1870? This is true. He even names the correct regiment. And, and then I married directly after the war in 1856. So you were born in 1856 and you married in 1856? What? <laughs> well, that can't be true, sir. You'd best check your papers again. I certainly shall. Now, do you go to church on a Sunday? Well, that's been a while, but I know all about religions. You take that Luther, for example. He founded the Protestant faith. Well, I saw Luther in the flesh around 20 years ago in Freiburg. I didn't speak to him, of course, me being just a simple farmer. How could I just go up to him? He was a small, strong man. He had such a firm voice, and there was all crowding around him. Can you remind me? Where are we now? Oh, we're in Todmoose in a tavern. Have we met before? Oh, yes, you're the notary. We've had a deal of serious matters to talk about. How did you travel to Todmoose? Well, I started out ten this morning from Hazel to Todmoose. What's the time now? It's about twelve noon. But didn't you just have lunch? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm at home now. It's five in the afternoon. I'm going to have a coffee. Patient promptly grasps what he is being asked, immediately and without effort understands the contradictions pointed out to him. When the investigator deliberately misunderstands him, the patient corrects him. Answer given with unhesitating certainty. So, 25th November. Patient doesn't recognise me. I urge, but surely you remember me? Oh, yes, you're the notary, of course. I know you, know you for sure, sir. <laughs> Patient starts to cry, adopts a formal tone. You're here, sir, to read out a will left by my uncle who passed away not long since. Can you tell me where we are just now? Oh, yes, we're in Hazel Town Hall. When did you arrive here? Just this morning. I loaded up the wagon last evening. He gives a precise account of his route from home to the town hall. He met no one along the way. I ask, but how is it you're lying in bed in the town hall? Well, that's just the way they do it in Hazel. It's often the case when there's a need. After all, I am ill. Doctor says it's TB of the bones and brain. On the 26th of February. Oh, yes, I've met you once before. Can't quite recall where or when. Oh, you're the gentleman knows all about cattle. Right, you're the vet. Where are we now? Oh, on a ship in North America. How do you know that? Well, it's a constant rocking, you see. Those trees outside, they show we're in harbour. 
What year is it? What year? I don't know, but it's not 1856 nor 1904. What have you been doing today? Well, this morning I set out from St. Louis, had a splendid breakfast there, chocolates and everything. It was a long road, like our old road from Hasel to Basel. What was your business in America? I was sent to America by the Hasel Union. They needed me to buy a cow. It was four months ago I set off from Hasel. Who are these other people? These people lying here? Oh, they're all sick. They have their temperature taken to compare it with the cow's temperature. That's so the cow can always be kept at the right temperature. Where is the cow? She's stowed lower down in the ship. I've already been to see her today. I heard her mooing. Why don't you go right away, sir, take a look? Being as you're not a doctor for humans, our doctor's already been today. He was a big gentleman. Name was Rhine. He's American. I went for a stroll with him. What did you talk about? Oh, we had a chat about the sale of a bed in that cabin next door. It's been bought by an agent in Germany. I show great interest in this bed. The patient holds firm to his misperception for an hour while other perception tests are made. No, I can't read now. It's dark on the ship. They ought to light the lanterns. Oh, that was great. That was really interesting. So, can I just get this right? That's an an extract from his actual thesis. The contents were all in the in the dissertation, but I've 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 turned the indirect speech into direct speech. Okay, yeah. interesting. All right. Yeah. But uh, you know, as Dublin comments about it, there's a great quantity of memory images step out away from their context, quite unfixed in space and time. They're disassociated and so become material for fabulation. Okay, and so I think that probably brings us to a close, does it? I think that's a good time to finish this episode, yes. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Till next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Dublin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Dublin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading! <laughs>